So we've been working through the story. This is God's story. Um, and it starts with him. It ends with him. It's all about him. He is infinite and good and self-existent. He spoke everything into existence. He made it all. The heavens and the earth, the stars, everything that fills the earth. And he made Adam out of the dust. He made Eve out of Adam. And he called it all very good. But now we've, we've reached a sticky point here in the narrative. This is, this is where things get dark, where they get hard, where, where this, this good God who created people to love them and satisfy them and for them to reflect him and bear his image, something's gone wrong. They've been made perfectly, the crown jewel of his creation, the apple of the Lord's eye. They were naked and unashamed, unaware of evil perfectly provided for, fulfilled in every way with no need or fear or lack. But then the serpent came. The serpent who had been so filled with himself that he, he decided he'd rather rule in hell than serve God in heaven. And he tempted Eve. She ate the fruit. She gave some to Adam and he ate it too. And they disobeyed. They trusted Satan. They followed him on a suicidal path of rebellion against God. Instead of trusting the God who loved them, they trusted Satan. Instead of resting in that abundant provision that he had for them, they doubted his love. And they followed the path of the devil, and they sought their own fulfillment outside of him. And now, here we are. The title of the sermon is Sin's Aftermath. What, what happens now? What does the world look like now that now that there's sin. We saw a, just a, a glimmer, a picture of what it looked like before. We can't even understand it because this is the, the air we breathe is sin. But, but what, what's going to happen now? So we're going to go through the next, the next part of this text. Genesis 3, 8 through 19. We'll be in there kind of all over the place today. Um, and we're going to look at two questions. How do we respond to sin? What happens to humans in this fallen world? And then secondly, and much more importantly, how does God respond to sin? What kind of God is he? So let's get there. We're going to open up to Genesis. Uh, I'm going to start back in 6 just to kind of put us in the narrative here. So the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. And she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. He ate it. And the eyes of, them, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So we're going to kind of, first we're going to go through these, these first few verses and we're just going to look and see what, what, what is Adam and Eve, what are they doing? What, what, is, what is their world like? What is their response to sin like? So it doesn't say it explicitly, but here we have God showing up in the garden. We can assume that this is something that happened before the fall. That God would come down to commune and fellowship with his people. I mean, a delight that we can hardly even imagine. Um, and, and, and what a sweet time that must have been of communion with God. And this must have been the greatest delight 
of, of Adam and Eve. I mean, you can imagine like, like a good daddy who comes home from work and the kids flock to him. Daddy's here. But now this time, this time, something was different. Something was horribly wrong. And instead of running to him, they ran away from him. We see in the last part of eight, they hid from the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. How heartbreaking. And why did they hide? That's what we've got to try to understand. I, the, the short answer is that they were guilty. And they knew that they were guilty. It says in verse 6 that their eyes had been opened and that they had realized that they were naked. Of course, they, they had been naked all along, but it had never occurred to them that this was a shameful thing. But their eyes had been opened, and the thing they saw was themselves. They never had to consider themselves. They lived in innocence, in a blissful, unaware state of, of themselves. They could delight wholly in God, which is what we were made for. But now, they looked inward. They couldn't look at God anymore. He was too light, too good. And instead, that they, they looked at themselves, and they knew something was wrong. They knew that they were guilty, and they couldn't stand to be in the presence of God, so they run, and they hide. We call this shame. Guilt is the declaration. Shame is the feeling that it produces. It's when we, we, know, we know that we are dirty. We know that something's wrong, and Adam and Eve were, were sitting in this, and they ran away from God. But not very good at hiding. It's kind of like the kid who sits on the floor. You can't see me. Uh, but the Lord God called to man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Notice here that Adam doesn't even address his sin. He doesn't say, oh, you're right. I did it. I'm sorry. He doesn't, he doesn't confess his sin. He just confesses the effects of his sin. That he was afraid and he knew he was naked and that he was hiding. But even while he doesn't confess, I think in his words we see clearly and look at, look at I mean, and all of this, he says, I heard you, I was afraid, I was naked, I hid. His focus was completely on himself. There's, there's a quote here by Walter Brueggemann. The speech of the indicted couple is revealing, for it is all I. Therein lies the primal offense. I heard, I was afraid, I was naked, I hid, I ate. Their own speech indicts them. And they make it clear that their preoccupation is no longer with the gardener who is good, with his vocation, his permission, his prohibition. That's been given up. Now the preoccupation is with I. And notice also that although they, he had fig leaves on, and yet he knew he was still naked. There, there was no hiding from the eye of God. His, his silly attempt at covering did nothing to alleviate that shame. So he continues, God says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. 
So now, after he doesn't confess, God comes straight to the point. Did you disobey? And again, he doesn't admit fault. But he immediately comes up with a lame excuse and blames Eve, this woman that you gave me. She, she fell for it. I just took a bite. So instead of taking responsibility, instead of being the head, instead of realizing what he's done and confessing it to God, he blames Eve. The one that he was supposed to cherish, protect, and provide for, he throws under the bus to try to cover his own guilt. So cowardly, so shameful. And But see here that he's not just blaming Eve, he, he's blaming God himself. He says, this woman that you gave me. And here I think we see the stupidity and audacity of sin the sinful heart is so broken and bent and perverse that it would rather blame God than take responsibility for its own sin. It cannot allow itself to be exposed and cannot admit, admit its own guilt. There's no depth, no bottom to the depth of the wickedness of the heart of man. The very God who made us and loved us wanted to give us everything. Adam is, is looking for anyone to be a scapegoat, even if that person is God himself. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The man says, the woman made me do it. The woman says, the serpent made me do it. Uh, and in this, let's just kind of go back for a quick recap. We will look at, at all the verbs that are used about Adam and Eve. This is the reality of, of what they are in sin. Their eyes are opened. They see their nakedness. They cover themselves. They hear God, and instead of running to him, they hide. And they're afraid. And they look for anything or anyone to take the blame for their sin. This is the human response to sin. This is what we are as sinners. This is what Adam and Eve were immediately after sin. And it's bleak. We live with open eyes, ashamed of ourselves, with our futile little attempts to cover ourselves and hide and blame. Our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with others is broken. Our relationship with ourselves is broken. And lurking underneath it all is fear. Fear of being seen, fear of being known, fear of judgment, fear of death, fear of God. So there is a little bleak picture of what it of what the human response to sin is, what it looks like to be humans in a sinful world. This is now, this is the arena in which the rest of this story is going to take place. This is, this is who they were. This is what we've inherited from them. Justin's going to go into more of that next week. But fortunately, there's more perspectives here. This is not just about us, us looking inward, us trying to analyze our own sin. We will never overcome it. Let's look, let's look again. Let's see what God has to say about sin. Let's see what his perspective on sin is. And although these words are hard, this is not the, the cuddly God that we necessarily want to see. I think in, in the heart of, of this passage, we see the incredible redemptive heart of God, who in spite of, of our sin and our betrayal of him, still has a plan and a desire to win back the hearts of people. So let's 
Let's go back in. The first thing we'll see is that God will see sin. That the attempts of Adam and Eve to hide are futile. So, kind of going back in. When, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and woman heard the Lord God walking about. They hid from the Lord. But, but then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? I think what's so interesting to see here first is, is that God pursues the sinner. He didn't have to. He could have proclaimed judgment, been done with it. He didn't have to go have a dialogue with them. And he would have been just in doing so. But no, he comes out and he calls to him. He says, Adam, calls him by name, where are you? I think it's, it's so glorious that he doesn't come as a furious tyrant or even as a wrathful judge. But he comes as a heartbroken father. Where are you? And I think, I, I think, I think that's such, such an important question. I mean, where, where is man? Man severed from God. Where are we? What, have we? what have we done? Where do we find ourselves? God designed creation so that he would be the center of everything. He's the great reality by which we make sense of everything else. If we remove him from the picture, it becomes nonsense. It's chaos, emptiness. Where are we? But he calls out. Adam says, I heard you walking. I hid. I was afraid. I knew I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord said. Have you eaten from the tree from whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Now, yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, God comes asking questions. Why does he ask questions? Did God not know? Is he busy doing something else? I'm like, all right, what, what happened here? Of course he knew. Of course he knew. But he asks for their own good. He asks because he wants them to step into the light. He wants them to confess. He wants them to acknowledge with him that this is wrong. He wants them to see what they've done, to see the seriousness of what they've done. And I think it also, it, it shows that he intends on having a relationship with Adam and Eve. It's been broken. The relationship is severed. There's hindrance. There is no longer free access and sweet communion between God and man. But God is not done with man. Amen. You'll notice, and I think it's interesting, when he starts to talk to Satan, he has no conversation. There's no dialogue. It is strictly judgment. He has no plans for a relationship with Satan, but he has plans for a relationship with man, even in our sin. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? So Adam and Eve, they hide. They crouch in shame. But God knows. God knows and he still intends on having a relationship with them. I think we can take great, great encouragement from that. So then he continues, he questions Eve. Again, kind of pulls a confession out of her. I was deceived and I ate. God sees our sin. He knows our sin. He will pursue us in our sin. 
and it's painful. We don't want that. But that's where healing starts. But now the questioning is over. We're going to take a shift in our narrative here and we are going to move to see the second thing that God does. He sees sin. He pursues sinners. But he will punish sin. He loves us. He intends on a relationship with, with Adam and Eve and with mankind, but he will punish sin. I'm not going to belabor this point too much. Uh, and Justin's going to get into it more down the road, but I think it's important that we, we realize why God punishes sin. This is not, this is not uh, something we like to deal with. It's not something we like to, to confront. We want a God especially in our culture, we want a God who's like, eh, that's, that's kind of bad. I mean, who dislikes sin, who just kind of prefers that we don't sin. That is not the God we have. If our God is small, we will see sin as small, and it will be abstract. But when we see just a glimpse of God as he is, radiant, glorious, holy, perfect, we will see sin for what it is, hideous and an insult to God and an offense to him. John Piper said, if we don't feel a sense of awe and fear and admiration for the infinite holiness of God that will oppose evil with wrath and fury, then all of our other thoughts and feelings will be defective. Everything begins with God. We don't understand the full significance of anything until we understand its relation to God. Habakkuk 1.3 says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. If God was okay with sin, he would cease to be God. He's perfect. He is light, and just like darkness and light cannot cohabitate, God and sin cannot cohabitate. He must punish sin. And he does. We see here he's going to hand out judgments. Uh, we call this the curse I think, I think it's safe to say, I, I was talking with Lisa uh, about this. I mean, some of this is descriptive. I think some of the, what God is saying is, is the reality of what sin has done. Um, but some of it is the direct judgment of, of God. So let's, let's look at this. He's going to first proclaim his judgment on the serpent and then on the woman and then on the man. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the day of your, days of your life. And later he says in 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. We're going to come back to that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the judgment of the serpent. It's, uh, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things to think about there. But I think more, more critical for us is, is to see, uh, one, that the serpent will be judged. Satan will be judged. Uh, that, that although he succeeded in tempting Eve, he is not going to have ultimate victory, and that's encouraging. But now, he's going to turn to Eve and this is where this gets hard and hard. And I've got to be careful how I present it. 16. 
To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I need to be very careful, very sensitive, very gracious here. I know that there are people in this church who I care deeply about. Who This is going to hit really close to home. This is going to be hard. I don't want to cause undue pain. But I think that there is glorious truth to be uncovered here, unveiled here. Consequence that is stated here is twofold for the woman. One, having babies is going to hurt. Um, and it wasn't supposed to be this way. This wasn't part of the original design. Um, and it doesn't mean by any, by any stretch that there's no beauty or purpose uh, in, in the bearing and raising of children. But we do see that even in something so rich and meaningful and beautiful that there's now a note of sadness and pain and brokenness Secondly, we see that, there, it, that the sin is going to affect the relationship with her husband. There's the phrase, your desire will be for your husband. Your desire will be for him. And there's some controversy about how to interpret that. Some say the wife is going to desire to domineer, to invert the created order and rule her husband. Others Others interpret it as your desire will be for your husband in an unhealthy way, to, to long for him to fill the void that God is no longer able to fill because of the broken relationship, and that he will rule over you, that that will not be met, that he will not be able to supply that need. And I don't know, I mean, it may even be some of both, but I think what we need to see here primarily is that the relationships that God has given us that were meant to be so rich and fulfilling they're now sown with pain and heartache and frustration. God had made Eve out of Adam to be a companion, a lover, a helper, one flesh. But now there's division and discord and strife. Heartbreak. And it comes to Adam. He says, because you listened to your wife, ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So because Adam disobeyed, and there's, there's kind of two obvious consequences here. One, the ground is cursed. And his life will consist of hard, unsatisfying, frustrating work just to survive. In the garden, all was provided for Adam and Eve. They had merely to take and enjoy the abundant provision of God. Adam was made by the hands of God out of the earth to rule as God's image bearer on the earth. The ground would produce for him and he would care for and tend to it, satisfied and glorifying God, doing the work that God had appointed him to do. But now that relationship too is broken. Adam failed at his post, and now all creation would suffer. He would struggle against it to survive, and the ground would fight back at him tooth and nail. Again, what was designed for purpose and meaning and fulfillment was now going to be the cause of frustration. 
and we see the devastation of sin unfold. All that is broken, relationship between God and man primarily, but between man and himself, man and woman, man and the earth. And then we see that you will die. You were taken from the dust, you're going back to the dust. God he had promised Adam that when he ate, he would die. And God was telling the truth. He died spiritually that day, severed from God, but his body would die. He would work and toil and then return to the earth. God made him from dust. He will be dust again. And this is what our sin, this is what his sin earned. The wages of sin always and forever will be death. I love what Justin said. Sin never delivers on its promises. And the death here is the terror that, that lurks and, and eats at us all. We are all going to die. And this is not an easy word. This is not a pleasant thing to dwell on, but no matter what we accomplish or how successful we are, how much money we make, how good we are, no matter how many friends you have, no matter how many kale smoothies you eat, you will die. And I will die. And knowledge of this lingers in the back of our mind. Hebrews 2 tells us that Satan holds the power of death and has made us slaves to the fear of death. Again, here we are. This is, this is the judgment of God because of sin. And it's bleak and it's hard. I am not have time to run through my six other pages of notes. Um, stay tuned for part two. Um, but we need to get through this somehow. We'll try. I think first we need to see that, that God is not just passive in this punishment. It's not just, he's not just a messenger of this. I think some of this is, is causal, but, I, but some of it he is actively doing. He says, I will do this. We got to ask why. Why is, why is God making our life hard? Isn't it hard enough already? This is not, this is not the, the thing we want to think about God. But I, but I think the, the crux of it is God introduces pain so that, so that we are allowed to feel the weight of the brokenness of sin. If God was, to, was God was to ease all our pain and allow us to find fulfillment and contentment here outside of him, he would be lying to us about reality. There is only contentment in him. And as a good father who disciplines his son, I'm not going to let Manny play in the oven. It's not a good place for a kid to play. He's going to get burned, and he will not let us be comfortable in sin. And so he, he, he sows frustration into the creation he loves because he now has a better purpose for us. God's highest purpose for us is not earthly happiness. It is an eternity with him beyond sin. Let's, 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 let's take our last little jump here, uh, and we're going to go and see the glorious truth in Genesis 3.15, which I sort of skipped over before. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Let's, let's try to sort of make sense of this. This is right in the middle of the curse to the serpent and by extension, Satan. So enmity means hostility. There's going to be war between the woman 
and the serpent. And there's going to be war between the offspring, the family of the woman, and the family of the serpent. And then that will culminate in, in one glorious battle. There will be a seed of woman who will do, who will confront our enemy, the devil, and he will crush his head. And he will suffer wounds, but they will not be fatal wounds. They are not mortal wounds, but he will deliver the death blow to Satan. Going back to Hebrews 2. It's in here somewhere. There we go. That's the one. We're told that, that, that God is not going to stand distant in this pain, this curse that he's given us. He's not just going to sit back and say, hey, good luck, deal with that. I hope... He, he didn't do it to be cruel. He didn't do it uh, he, he, strictly as, as a righteous judge, although he did it, he did it as a loving father. And then, and then instead of standing distant and watching the people he loves toil, he is going to enter into our pain. Jesus is going to come take a body, live under the curse, and he is going to confront Satan. And he actually already has. Jumping to the end here, but... And he is going to destroy him. He's going to destroy him who holds the power of death because we are slaves to it. But in him, we will not be any longer. I mean, how glorious that right in the midst of the declaration of the judgment of God, we get our first whisper of the gospel. This is not the end of the story. For, for God, sin is a temporary problem. There was a time before it. There's a time after it. He will conquer it. This is our great hope. Sin is real. The consequences of it are real. God sees it and he will judge it. But for those of us who run to Jesus, no condemnation. Full access to the Father with full rights as sons and daughters. This is the gospel. This is, this is the hope that the rest of this story is going to be unfolding for us. But unless we we, we understand sin and the problem. If, unless we understand the disease, we will never understand the cure. Unless we've tasted the bitterness of sin, we'll never understand the sweetness of the gospel. How, how good and how, what a picture of the sovereignty of God. This will happen. These are not uncertain terms. I will do this, he says. This is, this is going to happen and we see that even in the midst of sin, God has not lost control. He has not lost the battle. He will accomplish his purposes and no one will thwart them. Not Satan, not us. He will put an end to death and sin. So, what do we, what do, we do with all of this? First of all, let's... So if we're thinking from it, from God's perspective, let's see what he sees about sin and then, and then draw out some implications for us. God sees our sin, we saw. All of our best attempts at hiding and covering, convincing ourselves it's not that bad, that we're better than that guy over there, every attempt we make to cover our sin, to hide from God, is futile. But he 
calls to us, just like he called to Adam. Where are you? Stop hiding. And because of what Jesus has done, we can stop hiding. In uh, Psalm 32, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy on me and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you and you did not and, and you did not cover up my iniquity, and I did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. God is calling to us. He's calling us out. We don't have to hide. He knows it anyways. We can give up the charade, and we can come to a, a forgiving and gracious Father. Secondly, we saw that God punishes sin. But for those who are his children, we can accept that as the discipline of God. There's no condemnation left for us. Jesus has absorbed the full punishment of that sin, coming, living as a man, dying in our place. And, and, and what's left of the hardship of life, he is going to use for our good. He uses all things for good for those he loves. So don't, we're, we're told in Hebrews not to, not to reject the discipline of the Lord. He disciplines us because he loves us. He's going to use it for good. And thirdly, God will conquer sin. He will put an end to it. And we can take heart and stand firm in the victory that, that he has won for us. You can stop trying to do it yourself. You will, you will waste away in the attempt to conquer your own sin. But we have a champion, a conqueror who has done it for us. And it's it's in him we stand. It's in him we have life. It's in him that we taste the sweetness of fellowship with God on the other side of sin. It's to him we pray. Let's, let's close here. Jesus, we are awestruck at your love and your wisdom. We are awestruck to see your justice and your love and compassion lives all together. You are fully holy. You are fully just. But you are fully loved. And the lengths that you would go to win us back, in spite of our sin, God, give us the courage to step out. Give us the courage to walk into the light. Give us the courage to trust in your vic victorious triumph over Satan. We love you. Enable us uh, to stand in these truths and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.